Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, October 10th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. And my colleague, Julie Appleby of Kaiser Health News. Good morning. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Lots of news this week. I know I say that every week, but a lot of that happened right after we taped last week, starting with President Trump's Friday night announcement about immigrants and health insurance. This actually simultaneously ticks two of the Trump administration's hot button topics, immigration and health care. The order says that immigrants entering the U.S. will have 30 days to either obtain health insurance or prove that they have the financial wherewithal to pay for their own medical care if needed, which will have to be a whole lot considering how much health care costs in the United States. The proclamation said that uninsured people end up being paid for by people who have health insurance and taxpayers, which is true. It's true of all uninsured people. Um, but this administration hasn't used that reasoning to try to get more Americans' health insurance. So what was the point of all this? So this was, um, you could think of this as Trump reinstating Obamacare's individual mandate for immigrants, <laughs> but without allowing them the benefits of Obamacare. So um, this proclamation says that they have to purchase health coverage, but it's already the case that legal immigrants can't buy into Medicaid until they've been in the country for five years. This proclamation doesn't change that. That was already the case. That was, but that's then, in law. That's in law. Um, but it also notably says that while technically they're allowed to get subsidized health coverage on the Obamacare marketplaces, the administration will not count any subsidized coverage as fulfilling the requirement for having health insurance. And so that could put immigrants in kind of a tough bind. Um, and as you noted, Julie, it's really interesting because when you read the proclamation, they actually are saying a lot of true things about health insurance. They kind of lay out this whole reasoned argument for why people should have health coverage. It, some of it <laughs> sounded like some, you know, something from the Democratic president. Presidential candidate. Yeah, this is exactly the argument that proponents of the ACA have been making for years and years. And of course, Trump has fought back very hard against the mandate, signed a repeal of it back in 2017, and has actually called it, I think, the worst part of Obamacare. So it's really interesting that he's now applying this to immigrants. Although I would say I don't think it's entirely strange because it kind of fits in what his general approach to immigrants has been, which is the argument, and I think the perspective of the administration is that immigration is supposed to be for it is supposed to benefit the United States and not the other way around. And this is what you hear from them. Like we need basically that they need to make sure that immigrants are screened and they want to make sure they're only opening the door or giving preference to people who would be less likely to use public benefits, which is sort of end up in this situation where it's going to be easier for immigrants with more means, with more wealth um, to be able to make it into the country versus people with less means. And that has frustrated immigration advocates who say, um, you know, that that feel like we shouldn't be applying 
applying this kind of criteria to people trying to come into the U.S.? Well, in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. never has. I, I find one of the central ironies here is that the administration gave a whole long list of things that would qualify as health insurance, and among them are these short-term plans that we have talked about a lot at this table about not being very comprehensive. So if you come in and you get comprehensive insurance from the exchange and you get a subsidy, subsidy, then that doesn't qualify. But if you get a plan that doesn't cover anything and you get sick, then you'll end up being a burden on the taxpayers because you won't be able to pay for it. Yeah, it's a weird catch-22. For- <laughs> it does seem like an ideological workaround to be able to promote their immigration agenda. This is not part of their healthcare agenda. And in fact, that's what HHS officials told my colleague um, at an event yesterday uh, when he tried to ask about it. So um, they said, you know, this is an immigration policy, not a health policy. But it is interesting that it is the exact opposite of a lot of their um, health policies they're pursuing. I think a couple things. This is likely to get challenged in court when it goes into, um, when it's enacted. And it goes into effect November 3rd, I think. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So soon. Yeah. And I think that like the public charge rule, it is likely to have a broader chilling effect than just the people it targets. So this policy does not apply to asylum seekers. It does not apply to refugees and it doesn't apply to just tourists or people coming on visitor visas. Also pregnant women and children are Mm -hmm. exempted. Right. (laughs) But because immigration policy and health policy and all of these changes are so complex, we expect that, you know, the average person seeking to come to the United States might not, you know, read all the fine print or be aware of it. And so there will be folks um, deterred from attempting to come to the United States, even if this policy wouldn't apply to them. One other thing that just was a little bit strange um, that advocates said is so the administration has been trying to revise this public charge rule for quite a long time. They've been working on it for over a year. Mm -hmm. And the final rule is going to go into effect next week, I believe. And advocates particularly said they were frustrated that this change was not addressed in that public charge rule because if the administration did it through that process, there's an opportunity for public comment. Mm -hmm. But because Trump is doing it through this proclamation – Which is an odd – way to make policy. I mean, yeah. it's not that typically, you know, the, if the administration wants to do policy, they'll put out a regulation. Right. Know, and it, it, it does seem to suggest perhaps the administration kind of knew this would be a controversial move and didn't want to kind of have it be held up to scrutiny. At least that's what advocates have told me. So, All right. Well, next, we need to update the conversation we also had last week about reproductive health. We mentioned that the Supreme Court might announce it was taking that case out of Louisiana, requiring doctors who do abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals and and the court did just that. Uh, as we mentioned, that means the court is basically re-examining an issue it decided just three years ago in the Texas whole women's health case. So, Alice, first, before we get to the details, what's the likely timeline here? When When is all this going to happen? So they expect, because taking the case starts the whole briefing process, um, back and forth, filing on each side. And so they expect the arguments to take place likely in January and then a decision sometime next summer, right just a few months before people go to the polls to vote in the 2020 election. So a probably on the last day of the term, because that's when the Supreme Court save the biggies for the last day. And so this puts the court in a position that the court does not like to be in usually, but they chose to take the case. So basically, no matter what, it is likely to make a big splash. So let's talk about what what the possible outcomes. I actually I think last week I was listening three, but there's really a four. So they could take the case and then say, no, this is too much like Texas. So right. So strike it down, which seems unlikely. 
they could use it to overturn Roe v. Wade entirely, although most people think that seems unlikely too, right? Right. And they're especially because they don't have to go anywhere near Roe versus Wade to allow a lot of restrictions on abortion, if that indeed is what the conservative majority so on the court aims to do. The, the two middle possibilities, I guess, are they could overturn whole women's health and just say, yeah, that was wrongly decided in 2016. Um, or they could say and, that and the facts a, are different here. Right. So saying the facts are different would be going along with the Fifth Circuit's arguments on this, saying that, yes, I know the Supreme Court said just a few years ago that admitting privileges serve no purpose to help the health of women seeking abortions and uh, and are an undue burden. But the Fifth Circuit said, OK, but that was about Texas. And the facts in Louisiana are different because even if some clinics close, not all of them will close. And because the state is much smaller, women won't have to drive quite as far to access abortion. Doesn't it have to do with, I think there's differences in the, each state's law, rules about how doctors can yeah. gain admitting privileges. Right. Yes. 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 So yeah. the, the two, so the two, there's a three, was a three-judge panel, mm-hmm. and two of them said it's easier for doctors to get admitting privileges, and the, then the dissent said, no, it's not. So there's right. some dispute about the facts on the ground in right. Louisiana. Right, and it's important to remember that hospitals um, can deny admitting privileges to doctors seeking them for a variety of reasons. One, if they just are ideologically opposed to abortion, they could deny them, but also they could say, well, you know, an abortion clinic only refers people to a hospital, you know, very, very rarely, um, maybe once every several years. Um, and so you just don't have enough of a need to have admitting privileges to our hospital. So and, we're going to deny you for that. And hospitals take on some responsibility when they give admitting privileges to a doctor. Yes. I mean, they have there's all these requirements for background checks. And mm-hmm. so if a doctor's not going to send them patients, there's not a lot of incentive for the hospital right. to want to give them admitting privileges. Right. I think the... Um, impact of the law was so notable and so widespread in Texas Mm -hmm. that I think they would employ that reasoning a lot if they reach sort of a different opinion about Louisiana, because it's really easy to look at the Texas situation. I mean, I forget the percentage of clinics that closed, but it was like enormous. It was like, yeah, it was was, was almost half, as mm -hmm. I recall. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, And so I think if they were to come out with a different opinion in Louisiana, they could say, well, this was the, you know, they'd have to show that there wouldn't be such a sweeping impact in Louisiana as there was in Texas, perhaps. But the really, in your, yes. I can see you about yeah. to, the really big deal <laughs> yes. in this Louisiana case is that they're going to look at the this issue of standing, which is this legalistic thing, although in this case, it could be a huge deal because basically Justice Thomas had written that, why do we let doctors and clinics sue over abortion laws? Shouldn't it just be the pregnant women. The Supreme Court, along with the main argument, said they would also hear arguments um, from the state of Louisiana saying that clinics should not have the right to bring challenges on behalf of their patients, especially when it's over a law that state says that's designed to protect those patients from those clinics themselves. Um, So this obviously has sweeping implications for just every abortion-related litigation in the country because it's almost entirely clinics um, represented by, you know, outside legal groups bringing suit on behalf of their patients because if you are a pregnant woman who is blocked from getting an abortion and you personally have to bring that lawsuit, by the time it even gets to the first stage of the federal legal process, you know, that baby is born. Yeah, you're not pregnant anymore. (laughs) And so... 
if not the clinics and the doctors, then who has the standing? Other questions are, you know, would this just apply to uh, abortion providers or would it apply to medical providers more broadly? Where do you draw the line? Or other service providers. Yes. Even, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big deal. So be, that will be interesting. And well, it, and it'll be a huge. Well, everyone will be watching Kavanaugh, right? Justice Kavanaugh, because mm-hmm. he's, um, you know, seen as conservative on this issue. But we don't really have a lot of rulings from him per se to know exactly how he might land. And of course, so he replaced Kennedy. Uh, who was who, the swing who, vote who on Who was abortion. the swing mm-hmm. vote, exactly. But then there's also some speculation about whether Justice Roberts could change his opinion on it because, as we know, he is a little bit reticent to change you know, precedent set, precedent set right. by the Supreme Court. So but I think he, those was, are the he two. was in the minority on Whole Women's Health. That's he was, correct. So. Right. And yeah. Kavanaugh so was to... in the minority on blocking the Louisiana law in the first place. He wanted to allow it to go into effect, the admitting privileges law back last year. Oh, that's so. right. Because that kind of surprised some people. That's right. Yeah. So I think and he wrote a out a reasoning. So we, we have no idea what he's going to do. But uh, he dissented in the decision to block the law temporarily, and he wrote a reasoning basically going in the lane of the facts on the ground are different, and we should let it play out. Um, All right, and we should point out it's not just Louisiana. We're waiting to hear the Supreme Court could uh, any day take this case out of Indiana, which it it had actually resolved part of last year, but there's what's the piece that's left? So the piece that's left is uh, Indiana law that would uh, require women to have an ultrasound before having an abortion and then after the ultrasound wait 18 hours before they can go back for the procedure. That obviously forces women to make two trips. If that trip is very long, it, it can be burdensome. If you are poor and need to find childcare or you need to take time off work, um, that can that can be a deterrent. So uh, that is uh, something that the justices are still considering whether or not to take it. Um, It was relisted for tomorrow's conference, which was interesting. Most people think they aren't likely to take two (laughs) big abortion cases in an election year. There was a lot of surprise over even taking the one. So, um, but they they will have to deal with it somehow. There's also a Chicago case that concerns uh, what protesters outside of abortion clinics can do and how close they can get to people bubble going zones. in. Right. Bubble zone. Bubble zone. It's going to be a busy session. It's, yeah. Yes, it's already a busy <laughs> yeah. session. All right. One more on the reproductive health docket this week. The Trump administration is asking the Supreme Court to review a case concerning its rewrite of the Affordable Care Act's requirement that most employer health insurance provide coverage of prescription birth control methods. There have already been, oh my goodness, it must be a couple of dozen cases uh, on how to make exceptions for religious entities but basically the administration's rule would let anyone with a, quote, moral objection opt out. Um, how has this case gone so far, <laughs> this, this this latest challenge? Uh, the policy has been blocked so far. And so... Out of Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. I think yes. there's a nationwide... So the nationwide block's right. out of Pennsylvania, and then a limited block, I think, came out of California. Is that right? I think so. Obviously, big implications here. We don't know if and when the Supreme Court will take this case, um, but uh, this... If the policy, if the administration's policy were to go into effect, it would allow almost any employer, um, whether it's a big for-profit company or, you know, a small religious organization uh, to say, you know, the the head of the company can say, I oppose allowing my employees um, to have health insurance that covers birth control. So I'm just going to. Yeah, and we should we should point out there have been sort of two bif- different. One of them led to the Supreme Court case, the Hobby Lobby case, because yes. Hobby Lobby being a 
privately held uh, company decided that they didn't want, they wanted to provide some birth control, but not all kinds of birth control. Um, and then there was a case of all the Catholic, There, there's an exception for actual church groups, but these were the religious affiliated, mostly universities and hospitals ensued. And um, so there, there's been a lot of litigation on so this much particular. Litigation. So, so much, much litigation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to have some more in all likelihood. <laughs> all right. Uh, meanwhile, Medicare open enrollment starts October 15th and ends December 7th. This is when seniors and others on Medicare can switch or not from uh, regular Medicare to a private health plan or switch private health plans or switch their drug coverage. Uh, it is not to be confused with the open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act, which doesn't start until November, except in California, where it also starts next week. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit more about last week's executive order from the president about Medicare. Julie, you wrote a provocative story this week about some parts of the order that may have been overlooked, potentially making it easier for doctors and patients to opt out of Medicare. What is this about? That's right. It's kind of buried at the bottom of this executive order. It's actually number 11 of number 12 sections. <laughs> and it, it, there's a lot, a lot of details. But it would allow for folks to have private contracts with doctors, which means doctors could opt out of Medicare a little bit easier and have these private contracts. And um, we'll get back to that a little bit later. And also, it makes some changes to folks who don't want to take the hospital portion of um, Medicare, Part but a. not lose their Social Security benefits. So we can talk about that. So the bottom line is it makes it easier for patients and doctors to opt out in some cases. And you would say, well, why would they want to? Well, doctors want to because they sometimes don't think that they get paid enough in Medicare. Uh, hard to believe, but they do think that. And they would like to be able to charge more. And they are limited now in what they can charge. So most, the vast majority, like 95% plus doctors take Medicare and they fully accept how much Medicare pays for them. And they don't balance bill patients. You know, balance billing is when you get the bill for the amount that the doctor would like to charge, the difference between what the doctor would like to charge and what your insurer has paid. Those are basically the surprise bills. The so surprise they can become bills. The Those surprise bills. Are and, and Medicare has a number of protections for folks in Medicare so that most people don't get these balance bills. Now, some doctors choose not to participate in that and they can charge patients a little bit and, more. And right now, it's like an all or nothing. You're either in Medicare or you're right. out of Right. If Medicare. the doctors opt out of Medicare, they have to do so for two full years. And then, But then they can charge whatever they want. And then there's another little aside. There's, there's, a, there's a portion where they can – some doctors can bill you for some services, but there's a limit on it. They can't bill more than 9.25% more than what regular Medicare rates would pay. So the surprise bills aren't as big. But in the opt-out – the doctors can charge whatever they want. And this is called private contracting. And it's been controversial since it was discussed first in 1997. I covered, I have an entire half a oh file my. cabinet of the fight over private contracting in the late 1990s. And it's complicated because the folks who say that, that, that Medicare patients should be able to go to whatever doctor they want and, and et cetera, et cetera, there are some limits on that. So they say allowing private contracting would allow increased freedom. People could go see whatever doctor they want. They could have these arrangements. And the doctors, of course, could charge whatever they want. So in theory, maybe more doctors would take more new Medicare patients if they could charge whatever they want. However, this also means that people could get these surprise bills. And, and are patients really in a position to negotiate a good deal with their doctor? So this led to a very funny uh, exchange back in 1997 uh, when John Kyle wanted to make it easier to have these private contracts. Who was a senator was from a sen Arizona, and this right. actually this this sort of this idea came from a bunch of libertarian doctors in Arizona, which is why uh, John Kyle was his champion. But then, 
then Rep. Pete Stark from California, a Democrat, said, hey, there's not a level playing field. So he introduced what became known as the Buck Naked Act of 1997, which basically bars any negotiations, tongue in cheek, but it bars negotiations between doctors and patients over these types of prices or these contracts when the patient is buck naked or alternatively if the doctor was buck naked. And it, it became kind of a joke, but he was trying to make a point that there's not a level playing field here. But I did get to put that in my story. And I, I was very excited about that because who gets to write about the buck naked act very often, right? Now, um, all of this is still a little vague. What does it mean? Is it going to make it easier for doctors to just pick and choose which patients they opt out on so, they, so that they could do that? Would it mean so they don't have to opt out for two full years and not have any Medicare payments at that time? It's unclear from this. Or would there be some other third alternative? It's, it's really not clear. Uh, but it does direct... Um, the secretary to come back with some proposals and some rules and some ways to lift these barriers. That's not going to happen anytime soon. It will be at least six months. But boy, everything I've ever written about is coming back in this administration. (laughs) So uh, when it comes to this year's open enrollment, beneficiaries apparently may not have access to one of the most useful tools that used to be provided by Medicare's online uh, plan finder, the ability to compare actual out-of-pocket prices between plans. I can attest personally to the usefulness of this tool. I used it to check my mom's drug coverage every year for about a decade and saved her thousands of dollars. Um, It's not entirely clear that this is going to be fixed in time, at least for the start of open enrollment. Um, Do we know what's going on here? There's there's been all kinds of sort of it seems computer errors at the Department of Health and Human Services. Right, this week. because they also temporarily took down the uh, employee directory. So it's now harder for reporters to, and anyone else. And anyone else, <laughs> yeah, who's looking for somebody at HHS. Members of Congress or whoever. I to mean, you know, I, contact. It, they always say, you know, there's, there's always this sort of there are computer problems um, at, at HHS and, you know, we're fixing them or, you know, they, they actually put out the, the schedule for maintenance for the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, open like, Every Sunday for twelve hours, yeah, potentially. Yes, exactly. But I mean, be down. it's it's kind of the continuing good news, bad news about um, you know computer aided healthcare, which is that it's great until the computers don't work. Right. They revamped the the, the page and they're they're making it better. They said the Medicare but page, or the, the Affordable the, Care the, Act the page, enroll, the enrollment part for med, for for Medicare, and that's why this this plan finder thing dropped out. They they say they're going to have it fixed in time for open enrollment, but many beneficiaries really hope so because, like you said, it's key. You type in the drugs you're taking, where you live, and some other factors. And it gives you a comparison. What would your out-of-pockets cost be in these various plans? And they can vary a lot. So yeah, I mean, it, this it, is a very useful tool. I would say it took a couple of years for the tool to become really useful. Mm-hmm. But boy, when it did, you could put your, your drugs in and the dosages and it would save it for you. And then, you know, the next year you could come back and, you know, you just sort of, uh, if, if they've changed a little bit, you, you fix that. And then it shows you, bang, this is the, this could be the cheapest plan. I mm-hmm. mean, it was really, it was one of those things. It's like, this is very cool because you could have done it on a piece of paper, it would have taken you a month. Um, which, which is exactly how I choose my employer-sponsored <laughs> coverage. It's just like sheets and sheets of paper and lists and calculations. And, and, yeah, yeah no, for this, weeks. It's hard. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all out there. It's just a matter of actually if they can make it all work. Um, all right. Finally, this week, I want to talk about campaign 2020 because we haven't done that in a couple of weeks. Uh, first up, Bernie Sanders got an up-close and personal look at the healthcare system when he ended up in a Las Vegas hospital for chest pain, got a stent, and only days later uh, revealed that he actually had a heart attack. This rage- raises an age-old question. How much are voters entitled to know about candidates' personal health and when? Oh, where to start with this? 
It's, well, it's been upended in in this era now that you know we have the president who himself is older and has some health problems. Um, you know, releasing a letter that sounded like fan fiction from his doctor, <laughs> saying that he was you know basically Superman, um, and even just, from his government doctor. I right. mean, it wasn't just his personal doctor. Right. Since he's been having, I mean, the whole thing is been odd. Yeah. Well, I've been struck by how, I don't know how much criticism Sanders is getting over this. It doesn't seem like nearly as much when you just think about Hillary Clinton and her health issues or however you want to characterize that back in 20, when was that? 2016. 2016. Um, And I remember at the time, of course, there was just all this rampant speculation on the right about, you know, and and dire predictions about how she, you know, was on the death's door. And she had this one episode where she fainted at a rally and she had been sick. I think, what was it? She had pneumonia. She had pneumonia. Yeah. um, Which she got over fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did. And notably, she was 10 years younger than Senator Sanders is right now. She wasn't even 70 years old. I remember at the time, actually, I was I remembered doing a story about um, the health condition she actually has, has which is hypothyroidism. And um, it's actually a really common condition and she manages it with medication, etc. And um, and I, I was like, hey, guys, she actually does have a health condition that nobody's like talking about it and it's a manageable chronic disease, whatever. And like Drudge Report like seized on the story and posted it and um, it was, yeah. <laughs> but But trying to kind of draw attention to the fact that, yes, candidates do have health issues. So the question is, how much should we know about that? And I would say certainly a heart attack is something I'm glad that Senator Sanders disclosed this because I do think that's a serious enough of an event, especially for a 78-year-old. I, you know, I wouldn't blame voters for taking that into consideration when you are thinking about potentially electing somebody who, so if he would be, you know, he would be almost 80 years old and then he would be, you know, 84, 85, perhaps at the end of his presidency. And, you know, it's something to think about for sure. You know, on, on the one hand, I think the the media was kind of praised for not making, for not sort of getting hysterical about the whole thing. But that was before they'd said he'd actually had a heart attack. And, you know, and now. It's- yeah, it was it was downplaying it a lot in, in the first few days and talking about how stent is an extremely common procedure mm-hmm. that isn't not necessarily indicating something serious, but then it turns out it was in this case. <laughs> um, but it, the campaign has been fairly transparent and I think acknowledges that this is something voters deserve to know. Yeah, and I wonder if it, it does seem like a double standard when you look at the coverage of Hillary versus the coverage now. And and part of that could be just because the Clinton campaign was always kind of perceived as being like not forthcoming and she would go months without having press conferences. Yes, I think that's a fair point. Yeah, she didn't really do herself any favors on that front. But yeah, I mean, like she, you know, Health-wise, probably was in a in a much better place than perhaps Senator Sanders is now. So, right. well, at the other end of the age spectrum uh, of the presidential candidates, uh, Democratic presidential candidates, Pete Buttigieg or Mayor Pete, has as most have come to call him, is making an effort to jump out of the middle of the Democratic pack by unveiling a decidedly not middle of the road prescription drug plan that would require drug price negotiations and uh, could emphasize the government's what are called margin rights when they want to uh, basically get make sure that generic uh, copies of medications are available for very expensive drugs. There are also provisions aimed at the PBM industry, the so-called middlemen, uh, make them disclose the now secret rebates that we have spent so much time talking about. It's pretty weedy. Um, is, is this, do you think this might actually help him or is this just sort of another, you know, he, he feels like he's got to do something to get some more attention? 
I think it's a it's a good sign of how far to the left the field in general has gone on um, healthcare and and prescription drugs, so that. You know, we have Elizabeth Warren out there saying the government should manufacture drugs itself um, to, you know, provide a cheap option. Um, You know, you have them advocating for Medicare for all in which the price of all drugs would be negotiated. Um, You know, you have Bernie talking about um, the international pricing index. Um, And so then when you have uh, Pete Buttigieg come out with this plan, it seems moderate in comparison to those plans. Um. I've been struck by how um, progressive his policies have Mm -hmm. been, especially for someone from Indiana. And when you hear him talk, he kind of talks like a moderate. moderate. He, I think he wants to appeal. But when you look at what he's actually proposing, it's pretty far to the left. Though I will say he definitely eased back from his kind of where he initially seemed to be on Medicare for all. Because I remember earlier this year when we reached out to him, it was kind of like he was kind of, you know, a proponent of Bernie's plan. But then he's since released a Medicare for all who want it proposal where he's kind of trying to take that middle Close ground. to one of the ones in Congress, right? Yeah. It's similar to, I think, Medicare, Medicare for America. I think, yeah. yeah, where basically it would preserve employer-sponsored coverage and the tax breaks there, but kind of give people the option of enrolling in Medicare if they want to. It, and I it's think, kind of like a half a step above Biden. <laughs> yeah, it's like in between. Right. Mm-hmm. It's actually closer to Biden's yeah, plan is. than to it what is. Sanders yes, is suggesting I think it's now. very much closer to Biden's plan. Yeah. And it's, it's not seen as that left. When people are really concerned about what, – what are they concerned about in the polls? They're concerned about prices and how much they're paying. And mm-hmm. this would cap how much people would pay for their drugs. And so I'm not sure people are going to see that as all that radical. Yeah. <laughs> I do think, though, in general – and I, I say this as somebody who, like, loves policy, but I'm not actually convinced voters pay that much attention to, like, the policy weeds and details of what candidates propose. I think at the end of the day, it's a whole set of other things voters consider when they're going to the polls. Yes, I think it's sort of a box to tick. Well, not to forget that it's not just Democrats who are running for president. Um, Despite his impeachment troubles, President Trump and Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, are united and having a grand time accusing anyone who even breathes a mention of support for Medicare for all of, well, here's how he put it last week when he was signing his Medicare executive order in Florida. But they may go by different names, whether it's single payer or the so-called public option, but they're all based on the totally same terrible idea. They want to raid Medicare to fund a thing called socialism. Any socialists in the room? I don't think so. Not too many. Anybody? No? So this is going to be the Republican rallying cry, right, about health care. They don't need to have their own plan. They can just say that the Democrats are socialists. Well, by that standard, like... <laughs> All of America's seniors are in socialized socialized healthcare. That it and veterans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, by characterizing this as socialism, which I mean, you can argue like this is a huge government involvement in healthcare. But the fact is, we already have a lot of government involvement in healthcare. The single largest healthcare program is Medicare, which you know is the government paying the benefits. For and the people. idea, <laughs> the idea of Medicare for all is it would extend that to everybody else. Exactly. So just this characterization, I think, could be really confusing to people. People who don't understand the current system, but to them, and this is the idea of socialism is a big rallying cry for conservatives. And I think the other part of what he said that's very telling and something we've been hearing not just from uh, Republicans, but from the healthcare industry is saying that we were just talking about the spectrum and where Buttigieg is on the spectrum. And, you know, here you have Bernie way on one side and you have Biden way on the other to that to the 
those who oppose these plans, it's all the same. It's all socialism. So even when you have the most moderate incremental public option for some that the industry and um, the administration will still um, describe it as akin to Medicare for all in and their you, attacks. Yeah, and and you've seen a really strong emphasis on as um, Julia was Julia was explaining earlier uh, this order on Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. And um, CMS Administrator Seema Verma talks about Medicare Advantage all the time. And this is a program that Republicans have really loved because it involves private insurers uh, offering Medicare plans. And I think they're trying to really harness the popularity of that program to try to kind of cast themselves as being, you know, thoughtful on health care and sort of making good moves on health care. Um, when, you know, the issue of health insurance has become a really troubling issue for the administration because of its, you know, refusal to defend the Affordable Care Act in court, et cetera. I'm so glad you brought that up because really, <laughs> truly, last thing, um, the one thing that could really upset the apple cart for Republicans who, as Alice point out, just want to paint all of this as, as socialism uh, is if this uh, – uh, appeals court case, which could literally come down any minute, says that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional and then ends up before the Supreme Court. But looks like the administration is going to try to make sure that at least that latter part doesn't happen right away, right? Right. So, yeah, this is three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit. Um, these Two of the three judges are, are more conservative. And so the thought is that they would probably side with or uphold the lower court ruling, which would strike the entire law, in which case the Democrat-led states would undoubtedly appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, but what a colleague um, uh, Yasmin Abutalib and I found out just speaking to former administration officials is there's a real hesitancy inside the administration to try to actually get a Supreme Court ruling on this during the election because that could be politically really, really hard. The Affordable Care Act benefits which people already have. We all know once you give government benefits to people, you cannot take them away. This could be really Dis, you know, disadvantageous to President Trump as he's campaigning next year. So what? So so if the appeals court uh, broke from the district court and actually said no, we think the ACA is constitutional. The um, Trump administration would and the the Republican led states would appeal that. But what they could do is they could actually ask for a, a full en banc hearing by the whole appeals court um, instead of going straight to the Supreme Court if they wanted to kind of have a later timeline of, you know, instead of the Supreme Court hearing the case perhaps next spring, they could get it bumped to maybe next fall to where you wouldn't have a decision from the Supreme Court until after the November 2020 election. So, you know, it's very strange, um, you you know, it's like it's kind of like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth in a way because they they slam the ACA. They say it's unconstitutional. And yet at the same time, a lot of officials know that politically this doesn't play very well with voters. Well, it's kind of like the dog that caught the bus where they for years have said we hate the Affordable Care Act. We want to repeal it and tear it down. Um, and they tried and tried and tried. And now they are on the brink of potentially doing that. And they're worried about the implications. And I will say there was there's been huge division in the administration over where to even land on this lawsuit. I mean, for a long time, you know, I think the officials that really know health policy, uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar, Seema Verma, this is not a fight that they have wanted to pick. I mean, I've heard 
Azar has said to people, you know, if I never hear the word Obamacare again, I will be totally happy. He just kind of wants to let this die. But um, they were actually advocating for defending the ACA. But um, a lot of the conservatives in the White House, Joe Grogan, head of the Domestic Policy Council and others, actually convinced President Trump that they should side entirely with the Republican-led states and and side with striking down the whole law. And they've got a problem either way. And one of the main things is going to be if it's struck down, for example, what is their plan? And, and and do they have a plan to roll out? What would they do in the meantime? And maybe it's just delay it. But, but if it's not delayed, what is their plan? What is their health plan that they're going to put forward? Yeah. If, if any. With 2017 Redux. It'll, be, it'll just be great. <laughs> Can't wait. All right. Well, that is the news for the week. It is now time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the hell. Julie, why don't you go first this week? Well, I picked a Kaiser Health News story. The title is They Enrolled in Medical School to Practice Rural Medicine, What Happened? It's by Lauren Weber. And it's really interesting because, you know, there's a shortage of physicians in rural areas. And some medical schools, actually very few, have a, have a specific track. And she followed a school where there were eight graduates who specifically focused on rural medicine. And of those, just three chose to go to where the shortage were the most. So it kind of illustrates even when they're trying to get more folks, it's really, really difficult. So I thought it was a very good read. Alice. Well, I have a um, pretty grim (laughs) story over here. Um, uh, The CDC came out with a report uh, at the beginning of this week saying that sexually transmitted diseases are at record levels in the U.S. And uh, this piece in The New York Times by Liam Stack um, outlines just how bad the problem is right now, uh, specifically with syphilis, gonorrhea and chlamydia. And some potential causes, although they don't sort of pinpoint any one thing, um, I guess the most positive piece of it is that it's a sign that more people are getting tested. So there's higher rates of infections. Um, Potentially, it's not because there are more people getting infected. It's that more people are getting tested and and reporting. Um, Although they also said that these numbers are likely lower than the true numbers because for a lot of people, there's still a lot of stigma about going and getting tested and just access to testing is is a challenge for some people. And uh, a really troubling piece of it is that there is a big spike in cases of congenital syphilis, which is passed down from pregnant mothers to infants and can potentially be fatal. And so they're just advocating people get tested and use protection and um, get treatment as soon as possible. Those statistics kind of surprised me, actually, because there's been a lot of reporting on, like, how sexual activity is actually down among, like, teenagers. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's And how it's use of birth control is up. Yeah. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and unintended uh, pregnancies are down. Yeah. So. Right. Um, so it's important to see that, you know, most of the increase is, is among uh, men who have sex with men where pregnancy is not an mm-hmm. issue. Paige. Uh, so my story is by Alex Ruoff, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, from Bloomberg Government. And it is about six major pharmaceutical companies who have funneled more than $680 million into nonprofits, a lot of like patient advocacy groups. And this is actually double the amount of spending that they gave to such groups back in 2015. And mm-hmm. I thought it was just a really interesting story. Um, you know, obviously, this giving doesn't 
doesn't prove that that these groups are entirely influenced by the pharmaceutical companies, but it does shed a lot of light into how they're trying to influence policy, perhaps behind the scenes in sort of non-direct lobbying. Um, and you know, so this this story looked at a couple of these nonprofits and kind of raised these questions of like, oh, you're getting all of this funding from these companies, yeah, is that affecting your conversations on Capitol Hill? And um, the nonprofit said no, obviously, but um, but I. I think it's really it just was a really interesting look at you know how these companies are trying to influence policy in kind of alternative ways behind the scenes. So we have we at KHN have a whole database on uh, on drug company giving to patient advocacy groups. So I'll post the link to that in, in addition to the story. <laughs> they probably used that for this story. <laughs> sure he did. <laughs> so my story is also from my Kaiser Health News colleague, Marky and Haraluk, our new Colorado correspondent. It ran in USA Today, and it's called Hospitals Are Buying Up Housing Units Helping Stranded Patients Find a Home. It's kind of a follow-up to a story that Kimberly recommended a couple of weeks ago about a hospital in Toronto building housing next door, except now it's actually happening in the United States. Uh, in Denver, the hospital is partnering with the local housing authority to rehab an unused building into affordable housing for seniors. In health policy, we talk an awful lot about so-called social determinants of health, but in some places, it's actually starting to become a reality. So on that upbeat note, that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Julie underscore Appleby. Alice Olstein. EW underscore Cunningham. <laughs> we'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>